We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Well, I've had some significant events in my life since last being in this pulpit. Uh, Julian and Kim Linnell, our Minister of Missions, and his wife and my son Jameson spent about two weeks, a little over two weeks, over in Japan and Thailand visiting some of our missionaries. And uh, it was a tremendous joy to get to see them in their contacts, to learn more about the challenges that they face, the opportunities that they have, the gifts that they bring, incredibly gifted people, whole families involved in mission together, which is a joy to see. We are greatly blessed to have missionaries in this church who serve Christ where the need is so great. And so I returned really grateful for um, the commitment of this church to the work of mission around the globe where the need is great. And I think one of the reasons God has continued to bless Park Street for a couple of hundred years, which is a longer time than typical for churches, is because of this church's deep commitment to serving Christ in places where the need is so great. So I want to thank you for your generosity to the missions program of this church and the missionaries of this church, for your generosity in sending Julian and me over to encourage our missionaries. I heard again and again, we never see pastors over here. Uh, So they were just so encouraged by the church to send pastors over to encourage those on mission. The second big event happened yesterday here at 2 o'clock. Our daughter, Chloe, was married to Kendrick Neptune, and uh, it was a joy. Yes, we feel feel overwhelming gratitude at God's provision of a godly young man for our daughter, and we're now really encouraged that they are husband and wife and on their way to living a life of serving Christ together. And it was a joy to be with many of you who joined us yesterday and our family, some of whom are here now, and just really grateful for that moment. You're never really ready, I don't think, for those big transition moments in life to marry off a child, but uh, we're just overflowing with joy for what God has provided for our family. It is good to be back, good to be back with you in worship, good to be back here in the pulpit, and really good to be back in the Psalms. I love the Psalms. It's my favorite book in the Bible. And, uh, and so I'm excited to continue on in this series. We've had several other of our ministers do a great job over the last few weeks of continuing to preach out of the Psalms. And we will continue this morning with Psalm 72. So I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 72. After his resurrection, you might recall that Jesus said these, thing, these words to his disciples. And this is in Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he says, must be fulfilled. So from Jesus's own lips is the reality that the Psalms are in fact about him. And we've seen that over the course of this series this summer. But that becomes, again, especially clear as we open up Psalm 72. This Psalm is all about a king. Note the superscription of Solomon. Most think that this is a coronation psalm for the Davidic king in his installation onto the throne. It's possible even that David may have written this psalm for his son Solomon when he would transition into the, to the, to the throne. And this psalm, because of its uh, orientation around the beginning of a king's service, expresses the ideals and hopes that Israel had for their king. What a king should be. 
We all long for a king, deep down. We long for somebody to be in charge and to rule over us, benevolently provide and care for. And so when we begin to talk about kingship, we come close to the depth of each one of our hearts. And my hope as we open up this psalm this morning is to first just understand the longed for king according to God's word in Psalm 72. And then second, we'll see that the true king who came, who of course is Jesus, David's greater son, who fulfills Psalm 72. And then third, I want to think about what does it look like for that king's kingdom to expand as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. So that's the trajectory that we'll follow this morning. So the longed for king. And I would submit to you that the king that's portrayed here in Psalm 72 is, in fact, the king that every one of us does long for. Look at the beginning. Give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let's unpack, because these two words that feature in these first two verses that define the ethos of this king's reign, righteousness and justice, they are important, and they're important throughout the Old Testament for clear, or, uh, articulating the basic gist of God's character and heart for his world. And you notice here, it's give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the royal son. In other words, let this king be the one who rules and reigns, and through his rule and reign, may your rule and reign actually be enacted in the world in which we live. The king is just a conduit for God's character to be expressed in the world that God has made, where this king leads. So the two words are righteousness and justice. And the first word, righteousness, uh, the Hebrew is tzedakah. And uh, usually it is translated righteousness as it is here. But the basic meaning of the, the root of this word is straight. So imagine just a very straight line. And it implies conformity to a standard. The standard, however, is not just a set of abstract principles or rules, as we often think. It is instead a relational concept among ancient Israel. To be righteous, biblically speaking, is to conform to the standards of the relationship and to what is right or expected in that relationship, whether with God or with our neighbors. With God, this means, of course, walking according to his law, which is summarized for his people in the Ten Commandments. It also means loving our neighbors and living in the way of righteousness, tzedakah, with them, fulfilling our obligations to our neighbors in a manner that is consistent with the character and will of God. So it's conforming to a standard in a relationship that God has defined for his people. Then we have the term mishpat, which is generally translated justice. And this has to do with legal activity. Uh, it's about rendering judgment by deciding who is innocent and who is guilty. It means giving people their due, whether punishment or protection. And often it means caring for the marginalized and the vulnerable in a society. The justice due to an orphan, sojourner, or widow is protection from the powerful who exploit them. And we note here that the king is to use his authority in verse 4 to defend the cause of the poor of the people, to give deliverance to the children of the needy, and to crush the oppressor. This is about rendering justice in a world where injustice has caused many to suffer harm. The king and his authority comes in and puts things right so that the conditions of righteousness are restored. These two terms often go together 
uh, as I mentioned in the Old Testament, to kind of clarify the comprehensive obligations of God's people, and in this case, of God's king. An Old Testament scholar uh, that I enjoy, Christopher Wright, writes this, quote, in the, broad, in the broadest terms, and recognizing that there's a great deal of overlap in interchangeability between the words, mishpat, justice, is what needs to be done in a given situation if people and circumstances are to be restored to conformity with tzedakah. So mishpat, justice, is about actions that restore the standards and conditions of righteousness, and this means that everyone is fulfilling their ob obligations in every relationship in a manner that is consistent with God's design. When this happens, we have shalom, a third important biblical word, peace, the sense of flourishing at every level of society. No one is being marginalized. No one is being exploited or treated unfairly. There is no injustice. And when righteousness and justice are restored, there is shalom, God's intention for his world to experience blessings. So look at verse 7. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. The result of the king enacting God's righteousness and justice is peace. And this king, who's defined by these terms, by these characteristics and traits of God, is a great blessing. Notice how he's described in verse 6. May he be like rain, that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. You get this picture of, of green life and abundance, the rain nourishing the earth. Look at verse 16. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Beautiful language of shalom, of blessing, and flourishing at every level. And this is what the king brings. I've been thinking a little bit more as a world culture about kings this year with the coronation of Charles III on May 6th over in London. And uh, when he was in that service uh, on May 6th, Psalm 72 was actually being chanted in a Byzantine chant. And during the chanting, they were giving Charles many different of the, the accoutrements of the kingdom. And at one point, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or maybe I think it was an assistant, gave him the sword, you know, a picture of military might and power. And as Charles was given the sword, the Archbishop of Canterbury said this, receive this kingly sword. May it be to you and to all who witness these things a sign and symbol, not of judgment, but of justice, not of might, but of mercy. This belief that the king can come and bring conditions of flourishing, of course, influences deeply the, uh, the nation of England and how they approach the uh, monarchy there. But it deeply resonates within all of our hearts to long for a king like this, who is like the rain that falls on the moon grass. I want to point out again the reality that what brings about these conditions of flourishing is the, bring, the, the bringing about of justice and righteousness, which is defined in this psalm, in particular, in care for the poor and the needy. Look at verses 12 through 14, where this is picked up. We saw it already in verses 3 and 4, but it's, we see it again in 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. 
From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Now, it's a little tricky when we come to these texts uh, in today's context for us in Western culture, because in our Western culture, which has been so deeply influenced by the Bible and by the vision that God gives us in Scripture, we think that caring for the poor is just the default, kind of what everybody should do. There's a lot of social capital, actually, in our culture for caring for the poor. We need to understand that when Psalm 72 was written, the poor were expendable. The vulnerable were regularly exploited. It was a world in which power would rule with an iron fist and the weak and the needy would be the expense, the casualties, the collateral damage in the name of the mighty and the powerful. The biblical vision of a kingly authority that actually protects and defends the poor and the vulnerable is extremely countercultural. We just don't feel that way because our culture has been so influenced by these visions in the biblical texts. But it is. Actually, King Lemuel's mother, a great motherly counsel in Proverbs 31, the chapter we know more for its poem about the excellent wife, has the first nine verses, this mother, the king's mother, King Lemuel's mother, giving him advice and counsel for how to exercise his authority. And this is what she says to close. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So this is a feature of the longed-for king that Psalm 72 portrays for us. When the king is this much like God, when he has his justice and his righteousness, then the psalm shows us what the natural sort of uh, longing would be, is that this king's rule would expand. And we see it expanding through two realms, through the realm of time and through the realm of space. Look at time in verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Verse 17, also on expanding through time. May his name endure forever. May his fame continue as long as the sun. We want this king to rule forever because this king is so good and holy and righteous and and, and protecting and bringing flourishing. Of course we would want this king to rule forever. Look at the expansion through space as well in verses 8 through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. When there's a king this good, it's natural to long for the expansion of his reign across all of time and across all of the world, all of the nations. Would all of the nations serve him and come under his benevolent and gracious rule? And then the psalm links the rule of this king with one of the greatest verses and promises in all of Scripture from God to Abraham in Genesis 12, where God reveals his heart for his world, that through you, Abraham, all the nations or families of the earth would be blessed. And look at the end of verse 17. This psalmist tying together this longed-for king with the promise to Abraham, may people be blessed in him 
all nations call him blessed. This actually echoes the promise given first in Genesis 12, but given after Abraham offers up his son Isaac in Genesis 22. There's direct parallels here with this passage. And so the psalmist is saying, this king is going to be the means by which God's heart for blessing for the whole world is going to come about. They longed for this king, but he never really came in those days. They had a few good kings in Israel, Hezekiah and Josiah. Some of us name our kids after kings like that. Nobody names their kids after Ahab and Manasseh. Um, the evil kings who overshadowed the rule of the good kings. And honestly, the experience of Israel was that they continued to walk and fall short, to walk down their own paths. And their kings didn't reflect the justice and righteousness of the God who made them and gave them that authority, but rather reflected a self-seeking, a self-exaltation, an exploitation of people under their reign and rule and led the people into idolatry. And things were a bit of a mess. And instead of blessing and rule, Israel experienced hardship and defeat and ultimately exile from the promised land, which was a, a kind of death and banishment from the conditions of life until, and now we go into part two, the true king comes. And it's helpful to remember on this idea of a king that the key theme in the four, in, well, the three synoptic gospels, John's gospel doesn't quite pick this theme up in the same way, but it's the central theme of the first three gospels is the kingdom of God. You remember what Jesus says, his first words when he enters the scene? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus comes and he fulfills the ideal longed for king that Psalm 72 celebrates and anticipates. Jesus walks in and says essentially, I am he. And we read this in the gospels in Matthew, right at the beginning of the New Testament, verse one, chapter one, the son of David. Also then in chapter two, when the Magi come, they refer to this little baby in the manger as the king of the Jews. Great claims are being made about him at the very beginning of his life. I hope for a king who would establish God's reign of justice and righteousness and bring peace and shalom and blessing to all. And in that story of the Magi, they weren't kings as tradition has it, but they did bring gifts, which this text does say that the, this king receives gifts. And they come to pay homage to this newborn baby this infant king, something big was happening in Jesus's arrival. And we look at Luke's gospel at the beginning of Luke's gospel and we see the same thing. Jesus's identity as the son of David is made explicit and clear from the angel to Mary, basically saying he's the one that Psalm 72 is talking about. He will be great, the angel says, and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. It will extend through time and he'll reign over everyone. Mary responds with her song of praise that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. And Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And this expansion of this hope goes beyond Simeon says that God's, this is Jesus' is God's salvation that has been prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. That's expansion through space. This wouldn't just be the king of Israel, but he'd be the king of all the nations. The Gentiles would flock to his throne to give him praise. And this is exactly what happens in the outworking of the gospel, in the outworking of Jesus's ministry. And if you look at his ministry, Jesus embodies the justice and righteousness that we read about of this ideal king in Psalm 72. Consider just three types of people for a moment that in that day and age were vulnerable and prone to exploitation, the poor. Well, we've heard when John the Baptist sent people to Jesus to say, hey, are you the guy that we're waiting for, the one that's going to fulfill Psalm 72? He responds by saying, all of these sick people have been healed, the dead have been raised. And then he says, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Think about the woman who had the issue with blood, ostracized from her society because of her illness. Having spent all that she had, she reaches out to touch Jesus and she's healed in an instant. And then he speaks in front of the crowd and says, woman, you've been healed so that she would be restored to her community. Jesus cared for the poor or the blind beggar, beggar Bartimaeus on the road outside of Jericho, that he heals him of his blindness and he follows Jesus on the way. Jesus cares for the poor. Think about women. Women were exposed and vulnerable in that day and age. And in in so many patriarchal cultures throughout history, women have been in a very vulnerable position. Jesus relates to women with wonderful sensitivity, tenderness, and gives them dignity. Mary sits at his feet to learn from her master and teacher. After his resurrection, Jesus' first appearance, he gives to women outside the tomb to be the first to to, to declare and proclaim the good news that he, the king, has risen from the dead and that he continues to reign and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus brings dignity and blessing to women. And then think about children. Now, again, this is a default because our culture has been so influenced by the scriptures already, but children were not cared for well in the ancient world. They were not to be involved in normal life, and they were very easily exploited, often reprehensibly so. And remember when the disciples, when people want to bring children and the disciples are like, no, don't bring children to Jesus, that Jesus says, stop, let the little children come to me. And he blesses them and dignifies them. Jesus' kingship is expressed in his earthly ministry as a care for the vulnerable, the easily exploited, and he shows a tenderness and a compassion and a love to them as he walks throughout his ministry. Now, I will say this. It seems like we would all just embrace the reign of a king like this, but the reality is, I wanted to point out at the end of verse 4, what else does he do? He not only gives deliverance to the children of the needy, but what does he do? He crushes the oppressor. And there's a sense in which I think every one of us knows that uh, we are a part of the problem, honestly. And I'll hold up to you the picture. So you would think we would embrace this king, but we also know that we're complicit in the brokenness and injustice of the world, that we are often, we've often not used our authority and power to bring blessing to the vulnerable and those under our care, but rather for self-exaltation and exploitation of others. We know that we're often on the, on, the, on the wrong side of the righteous king coming into town. Remember when Peter's in the boat with Jesus and Jesus tells him to cast his nets on the other side and he realizes that he's in the boat with such a powerful king, what does he say? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. The one who brings righteousness and justice for those of us who are involved in injustice and sin can be a source of fear 
not, not, not joyful reception. And yet, this king as he comes, not only does he care for the vulnerable and those exploited, not only does he lift people up who were regularly marginalized, but he also, instead of exploiting even his enemies, he uses his authority and his power to pour out his life for you and for me. What an incredibly good king. So that we might be forgiven, washed, as we'll say in a moment, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We can be cleansed and forgiven so that we might embrace this righteous, just king and be a part of the expansion of his kingdom. I'll just say a few comments about that as we close. When Jesus was on earth, he taught us how to pray. And we pray this prayer every week when we gather here at Park Street for worship. And in that prayer, we pray these words, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we join in seeing the reign and rule that brings flourishing and peace that is marked by righteousness and justice? How do we join in the bringing of this kingdom into our broken and hurting world? We do so through proclamation, the proclamation of Jesus as king. And I don't just mean kind of the dutiful, well, I guess I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. But what I really mean is people whose lives have been changed from the inside out by Jesus. You've met new Christians, right? Some of you here are new believers, and we love you because when you come to know Jesus, especially if you're already an adult, you're always just so overflowing with enthusiasm about how he's changed your life and given you something to live for, and dealt with you so kindly and tenderly and forgiven you and washed you clean, and you just can't help but tell people about him because you want others to hear and come under his rule and reign like you have. And so we see his kingdom expand through that simple sharing of the story that God has given us that others would come to know the rule and reign of Jesus who's changed our lives and can change the lives of our neighbors and friends as well. And then there's the living out, this expansion and reign through us. You know, as the kingdom expanded from the earliest days, the poor were cared for. I've read this to you before, uh, probably more than once, but I'm going to read it again. It's from uh, the Roman emperor Julian in the 4th century. He was a very strong opponent of the Christian people in the, in the Roman Empire. But he said this, why do, you, why do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well, while everyone, while everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. What caught the attention of the watching world was how the Christians cared for the poor, the kingdom expanding, the kingdom of righteousness and justice manifesting care for the needy. Everywhere the gospel went in the ancient world, it was received with joy and gladness by women who again, as I've mentioned, were a vulnerable class in the ancient world and often exploited. But everywhere the Christian gospel went, women received it with tremendous joy and gladness because it gave them a dignity and a protection and a blessing that they didn't experience in the cultures around them. And then children also were were loved deeply by the early church. Rodney Stark, a sociologist who studied the early Christian period, would reflect on the fact that the Christians were known for their care of children, especially female children. And this was radically countercultural as the kingdom expanded. In other words, 
we see the kingdom expand not only through our proclamation and our sharing of our testimony, but through the way that we live and embody the life-giving rule and reign and power and authority of Jesus in our lives. The kingdom expands. So let me close with just a, a couple of words of application. I mentioned that this is the longing of all of our hearts, this kind of king. And I just want to say personally to all of you that my longing would be that each of you would know the richness of the life and rule and reign of this king in your own life. So maybe the first application is just to say, are you still resisting his rule? Or have you yielded? And you might think, well, I, I don't know about a king of righteousness and justice. And I would say, well, actually, this king will, will wash you and cleanse you. He will embrace you and set you on solid ground. And he will give you life and meaning and joy and richness under his rule. And so the first application is just to yield. It's to surrender to this king, to repent and believe, to trust him and to give your life over to him. For those of you who have already done that, my first application for you from Psalm 72 is just to go praise him and thank him for what an incredible gift we've been given in this ruler, this son of David, this king, for how tenderly and graciously he has dealt with you personally and for how wonderful it is to see his, the impact of his rule and reign across the world for the last 2,000 years. And you and I get to be on the inside of this glorious kingdom. So praise him for that privilege. The third application that we could make from this text is that all authority and power, and most of us have some. If you're a parent, you're a boss, you're working with people in, in, in an NGO context, you've been given some authority and some power. And every authority in the world is delegated from the God who is the God of all authority. And that authority is meant to be used to bless and care for those under our care. Are you using your authority to be a blessing, to bring shalom to the people that God has entrusted to you? Or are you exploiting, worse yet, abusing, which is the exploitation of the vulnerability of others? for one's own gain and advantage. Jesus does just the opposite, and he exploits himself in order that we might receive life. Are you using the authority that God has given you to bring blessing in the world? Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. I'll end with verses 18 and 19, which are a tremendous... We're not sure if they were just added by an editor at the end, but nonetheless, they fit this prayer for the king really well. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Thy kingdom come, Lord, through me and through you as those who have become his subjects. Amen and amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for this vision of a glorious king who we now know to be Jesus. We pray that his rule would expand in our own hearts and in our community. God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know him really, that they would know him as this gracious king. And I pray for all of us who do know him, that we would serve him in response to his love and forgiveness. That your justice and righteousness would be known throughout the world. God, give us this heart that you would be glorified and your son would be exalted. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.